Morning, Jay. How are you? I'm great. How are y'all? Oh, doing all right. Welcome back for another uh, episode of uh, our Southern Agriculture Weekly. Uh, a lot, uh, lot to cover this week. Uh, first thing I wanted to jump into, though, was uh, kind of try to do a thing here every week if we can. But, like, what's the one thing that uh, should be top of mind for uh, farmers uh, as we head into the uh, second week of March that you'd like to share? <clears throat> well, we're... Planting has begun in earnest in the in the deep mid-south, corn planting has. And I would point out again, similar to last week, the things that are very important are the things that you can't change after you plant corn. So keep in mind population, planting depth, distribution of the seed, and all the things that make the planting, planting process go smoothly uh, need to be done up front in corn. And what have you what have you been hearing for some of the experiences at least uh, are seen uh, from folks well, down down south? What is how's it been going so far? Everyone's very excited to to be beginning the crop. We're just a day or two past the big rain event we've had over the weekend or earlier in the week, and they're just getting started. So it's it's an exciting time of the year. Usually is that's good. Uh, so you had uh, you had the gin show after we talked last week. You want to. Uh, I guess uh, I know enough to be dangerous about the gin show, but uh, why don't you maybe share a little bit about your experience there and maybe even some of the history of it if you want to want to go that route a little bit. And you had a, an interesting experience in meeting our, uh, our Secretary of Agriculture, I saw. I did. The gin show this year was, I think it was a great experience. It was very well attended. It had a had an interesting vibe about it in that there appeared to me to be a lot of excitement, a lot of hunger for information. We had quite an experience at the booth the monsanto booth but i spent the time running around doing other media interviews talking to just a whole variety of people and really enjoyed interacting with and talking to a lot of friends that i hadn't seen in some time i did have a chance saturday morning i believe it was to visit with secretary purdue a little while about mid-southern agriculture and the scott learning center and the things that we do here on the here on the site uh it was it was it was quite an experience the weather was good, and everybody had a good time. Oh, that's good. What well, what's the what is the focus of the gin show? What it's uh, it's it, uh, I guess cotton focused, obviously, but well, give me a little background on that. Well, it started as a as as I understand it, it started a long time ago as a gin machinery show, and it expanded outward from that to really represent mid southern agriculture on a broader basis. So there <clears throat> there are lots of of uh, booths there, everyone interested or ha- who has an interest in mid-southern agriculture that provides a product that typically has a booth and sits around visits with customers. Some people take orders for equipment. We talk about how seed needs to be used most appropriately and talk about climate and all the things that, that people have to make decisions about in a year. It's It's fills up the cook convention center in memphis so it's a it's a rather large show it's a good time had by all usually <laughs> i bet <laughs> uh well this week i want to kind of focus on cotton i know that's uh i think you had said last week or a cotton guy through and through um and really want to focus in on that crop for the next uh next several minutes because uh again it's one of your passions it's one one reason why the Scott Learning Center down there exists, and, and it's one of those uh, crops that's been with the Southern agriculture for hundreds of years, literally. So um, let's talk a little bit about cotton. I guess give me uh, 
I, one, I suppose your background with the crop itself and your, your passion for it and where that sort of came from. But then also, if you want to dive into a little bit on just trends that are impacting the cotton, uh, cotton farmers, cotton farming, the business in general, et cetera. Well, <clears throat> cotton is a crop that has quite a deep history and there are lots of things that cotton has been sort of the motivation behind learning various parts of, of a, the ecology and insect control and things that have happened in cotton. And it's, it's really a story that has sort of come into a little bit, a little bit more clarity in the last few years, in my opinion, because I think things have changed. And if you got a few minutes, I'll talk about a little bit of that history. But if you look at cotton, it was a crop that was grown on up to, well, in modern times, if you look, the United States had 26, 27 million acres of cotton at one time back in the 20s. If you look at the yield history of that cotton acreage, there was basically no yield progress made until the 40s. And when you get to the 1940s, a couple of things happened that really enabled the cotton industry to grow, to improve. The couple of things that happened primarily were synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. That really began in the 40s. From there, yields started to go up and it reached various plateaus over time. If you look over that time, in the 40s, we had one generation of pesticides and fertilizers come along. Then you move into the next era through the 50s and early 60s. There were other developments that happened along the lines of varieties. Uh, other pesticides came on. Then you move over into the 70s and variety development really took the stage. There were some notable varieties developed that really changed the industry, but we still had a couple of things overhanging the industry that, that limited its ability to be so much better. There was a lot more potential there that was unrecognized. That primary factor that was always overhanging the industry was boll weevil, the presence of the boll weevil. Boll weevil is a, is a disruptive pest. It disrupted our pest control. It disrupted our agronomics. We, we always tried to plant early to manage that threat from that particular insect pest. And then that was made a little bit worse in the mid-80s. In the mid-1980s, 1985, 86, tobacco budworm, or Heliothus virescens, was found to be resistant to pyrethroid insecticides in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. By the late 80s, that had moved over into Mississippi, Arkansas, and Louisiana, and the cotton industry was really in crisis. And it was, it was based around the fact that we had issues with insect management. Well, all of that has, has really been made a great deal better by some of the innovations in the recent past the primary uh, primary couple of influences that i would i would mention to people and all of this builds into modern times and the story that we have to tell really in managing new cotton varieties but the the thing that really changed was that number one boll weevil eradication began in the 80s on the east coast there were some unique things about boll weevil biology that enabled scientists that were involved in developing the program to put together a set of growers to eradicate the boll weevil from the United States. There are not boll weevils outside of far southern Texas in the U.S. today. Can you, can you pause for a minute for me and, and maybe others that are listening? Is like, can, you, can you detour for a second and just explain what the boll weevil does to, to the cotton plant? Well, boll weevil is a, is a, is a beetle weevil 
that does two things to the <clears throat> to the cotton plant. The the cotton plant fruits, it's an indeterminate perennial plant. So you have a plant that grows plant and it grows fruit at the same time. Well, the boll weevil does two things. It it is an exclusive cotton feeder in most of the US cotton world. There are a few wild plants it could survive on, but cotton is its primary food source. So it, it's really limited in what it can feed on. And if there's cotton around and there are boll weevils around, they're gonna find it. Okay. What they wind up doing is the both the male and the female weevils feed. They puncture squares, which are flower buds, which oddly are they're actually triangular shaped, not square shaped. But uh, the insects feed on the squares. But one of the more important things is the female weevil actually eats out a gallery in the square, lays an egg in it, and that egg becomes a, a larvae which feeds into the square that damages it causes it shed from the plant. And it, and it really is a, an incredibly disruptive insect pest in a cotton producing system. Uh, there were a couple of things about the boll weevil that made it, that made us uh, or allowed us to develop a program to number one, manage it. Number two, eradicate it from the U S uh, the pheromone was identified chemically. So we have a pheromone that would attract the, the male and female weevil and being a, an exclusive cotton feeder, we could manage the crop and eliminate or greatly reduce the number of insects present. And with that, we eventually uh, don't have it as a pest in a lot of the U S. So was it a, was it a foreign pest that was introduced to the United States or did it live here and it, how that, how that worked? It, it was not introduced. It entered into the United States from Mexico in the, late 1800s and by 1920 you know early 1930s it had moved basically across the u.s cotton belt wow. so for so it, 50 it happened that yeah so so for 50 60 years cotton farmers had this pest that they just is almost zero management uh, of well there was a lot of ability to manage okay. but you fought tremendously difficult battles to do so okay. it required great amounts of insecticides it required a lot of, of uh, airplane time over fields. There were there was tremendous effort put into trying to control the boll weevil and grow acceptable cotton crops. Gotcha. Well, that sounds like an interesting sustainability story maybe that you'll dive into in a little bit when you talk about reducing, reducing it's a, it's, insecticides. It, it, it's a great story along that line. And it also was a very disruptive pest because as you spray boll weevils, you know, there were places in the United States that sprayed boll weevils 20 times. That may be a, a little bit high, but there were places that were play, spraying in the high teen numbers of times. Wow. And when you do that, you disrupt beneficial insects and you wind up with other worms that are a problem. And it's, it's just, it's it, it turns into quite the battle through the year. So it altered everything we did in cotton from pest management to planting dates to varieties that we chose to try to grow. And without it, the cotton world and cotton production process has changed and i would imagine that's too from a from a grower from a farmer's mindset of you know you you don't know what you you can't pencil out what your yield is going to be with any sort of you know degree of you know high success you know what i mean like knowing that well knowing that that test is out there it's it's kind of hard to understand what you're what you're striving for every year after year yeah, it introduces great greater variability than already exists. You know, there's still 
basically no ability to predict yield other than to say that historically it's going right. up based on experience. But the reality is that insect pest introduced variability that really was difficult. I will say this, though. You know, there's a statute of the boll weevil in South Alabama to say thanks <laughs> to the weevil. <laughs> that statue's called Ode on a Boll Weevil, and it was the people of, I think it's Coffee County, Alabama, saying thank you to the weevil for teaching them how to grow other things. <laughs> uh, that's and, pretty funny. Uh, the reality is, if it weren't for the boll weevil, I'd probably be in a whole other career today. Yeah. But I don't want it no, back. No, either. exactly. Yeah, I'm sure many people listening here probably don't want it back either. All right, thanks for that little quick detour because I, I, I've seen stuff and heard it's bad, and, and that's kind of where it stops and ends for, for the folks of us up north uh, that hadn't, uh, thankfully, didn't have to deal with a pest like the boll weevil. So, uh, so quick detour. Yeah, did. De- you, you did a detour of the boll weevil. You mentioned tobacco yeah. budworm, and then you're talking about insect resistant uh, insect management, I suppose. It's kind of where I, I left you off there. Um, feel free to pick back up there, but I, I think that was an important discussion that a lot of us don't we don't know that history of it and it's been what 20 years since the eradication 15 20 years since the eradication it it's been it well it moved in stages across the u.s so it's we're still not weevil free entirely because of the southern texas areas but yeah it 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 developed over about 20 or 25 years that various areas became weevil free gotcha okay all right, back to your uh, overview of cotton. Sorry about that, but I thought it was important to kind of discuss. Well, I, I, I think just one more comment about the boll weevil. The, the truth is that that is worthy of study because we learn things about ecology and biology as a result of trying to deal with the weevil and figure out how to grow cotton that our society would not know today without the weevil. Uh-huh. Now, and, and I think that is, is relevant because particularly from like my generation of scientists, we grew up dealing with that and and seeing that as an insurmountable problem well it turns out it wasn't insurmountable we've dealt with it and it's it's changed the system and i really i wish that we could get that history around so that people understood it without having to experience sure so back to the to the bigger story but weevils and and budworms were a very disruptive pests and in their presence, we had to alter the way that we grew cotton agronomically. So that typically meant that we planted very early. We wound up with a lot of seedling disease and a lot of issues in the field that were just problematic. It also meant that we sprayed a lot of insecticides and we wound up disrupting beneficial insects and we just had a mess. So without the weevil, variety development started to change in the really in the mid 90s. We started to move toward varieties that had different sorts of characteristics. And some of this is is based in my observations, but if you look over on the East Coast, particularly a place like Georgia, they were very high percentage Delta Pine 555. They grew later varieties. There, there are other reasons for that other than just insect management. But as they began to get the weevil out of the system over there, they started to be able to grow varieties of different season lengths for instance they went from sort of an intermediate medium maturity type variety to a much in some cases a much later type of cotton variety i think the, the probably the best example of that is delta pine 555 it was on a very very high percentage of the acreage in georgia louisiana southern mississippi 
And we couldn't have grown a variety like that in the presence of the boll weevil, not in the presence of very many boll weevils. So it's an interaction of variety development occurring simultaneously and acknowledging the fact that the system's changed and that we can do something different. Well, also included in that conversation is Bolgard and the, the BT traits that have come along in cotton production and cotton production systems. I go way back in that development, and we'll probably go down that path in one of these conversations eventually, but I worked on Bolgard before it was Bolgard and actually found the escape bollworms in it through my experience. But it was very exciting in developing that new technology in that all of a sudden we had a technology that helped us deal with tobacco budworms. Well, tobacco budworms were basically in some parts of the South uncontrollable with insecticides at that time in by the mid nineties. It, it was, it was quite a mess. And if you had weevil and you had budworms and there were parts of the world that they coincided in for a time, you really had an insect management problem. So today we've, we've had the weevil eradication program be a great success. We've introduced Bolgard. Now we're on the third generation of Bolgard. And we've got other technologies from other providers coming along. So we've got an insect management system that is radically altered. And it has enabled the variety development system to basically fill itself with varieties that have unique characteristics. And I think that's where we arrive at really the most modern times. So kind of, a, that's super interesting that, and that's only really happened in the last 20 to 25 years. Um, yeah that back to your historical timeline of, of cotton development is in, in cotton history, at least in the 20th century up to early 21st century, um, fairly stagnant in the early part. Then you have the, the pest infestation um, that was uh, relied heavily on insecticides, um, provide a higher degree of variability. And now, now we're entering this sort of age, I'm not going to call it a golden age of, of cotton production. Um, I'll leave that to some other experts, but it sounds like from what you're painting here is we really are pushing the boundaries of that modern technology and modern agriculture for, for cotton production. Would that be a fair statement? I, I think that's exactly right. And it just is an absolutely fascinating conversation to have. And I have it daily with someone and, and I'm very happy to have this sort of a forum to share it in. I hope we can make this we, we can grow into these topics in a little more detail, but if you look at what has happened, we have gone from later varieties to earlier varieties two or three times in in recent times. And what, what does that mean I, real fast, Jay, if you can kind of well, explain it to people the, who don't know much about cotton? Cotton is a perennial indeterminate plant. So what that basically means is that when I say it's perennial, it thinks it's a tree. So its genetic programming is that it'll be here next year. When I say indeterminate, that means that it it grows plant and fruit at the same time. Bowls, basically, mm -hmm. at the same time. And and by the way, I left out of the conversation a minute ago. Bowl weevils, being named bowl weevils, they also feed on bowls, just not, not exclusively squares. Okay. But um, if you look at it, <clears throat> the indeterminate nature of the cotton plant, we have some ability genetically through the breeding process to introduce factors that somewhat complicated factors that we call determinancy and determinancy is is roughly 
a measure of the time that the, the plant will use to make a crop. Okay. So some plants are less determinate, some are more determinate. And the easiest way to think of that is the more more indeterminate or less determinate that a plant is, the longer season that it will grow. Okay. And the more it typically, and this is not always the case, but typically those indeterminate plants tolerate stresses better. They don't just stop when the environment turns bad. There's lots of reasons that you manipulate that. But what part of what comes along with having a more determinate, shorter season plant typically is that you have less opportunity to make yield, to accumulate yield over time. So as you as you remove those insect problems from the system, whether it's weevils or bollworms or budworms or whatever, as you remove those things from the system, you all of a sudden have more season to work with. You got more time to work mm -hmm. with. And the more time you have, the more fruit you can accumulate in cotton. So you wind up with a plant that can basically be out in the field longer without some of those threats from insect pests. And that lets you net accumulate more yield over time. Gotcha. Okay. So exposure to the elm, to, to the ecosystem around it um, is minimized, I suppose, or, or the, the factors that can come in and then sort of speak attack a cotton plant or cotton. Well, I mean, you know. we've managed them. We've either got biotech traits like Bogard three, or we've got, we've dealt with the bow weevil through eradication. So they're not as, they're not the threats that they were. Right. We still have all threats based in weather, sure. you know, all those things. Yeah. But what we've been able to do and it, and it's not just Monsanto, but there've been breeders in many entities around the business that have experimented with this quite successfully, but we've been able to, to capitalize on the extra season that's available to us. And we've been able to, to do things in the breeding process that are driving up yield. It all interacts and it is a grand and great victory for science, to be quite honest mm. with you. If you look at it, that lingering, there are multiple things that have happened in the last 15 or 18, 20 years that are, that are increasing cotton yields. And the, the yield data from the different states proves this out to be true. It's a matter of debate of how much one factor or another had an influence. But part of what the breeders have done that have changed cotton, has changed cotton varieties, is turnout is up. So there's a ratio of lint to seed in the, in the crop. So you got so much lint, you got so much seed. That's, that ratio is called turnout, and it's, and it's typically been in the 30s, you know, 30% or so of the gross weight that you harvest in the field in a cotton crop is lint okay so the rest feed and trash and whatever else well when i started working that was in the high 20s so it would be 27 28 29 percent we've got varieties today that are in the 40s wow. the low 40s 40 percent on the money about so and some higher than that so that is basically 10 percent of the yield gain right there over time and all this is somewhat subject to you know the specific system you're talking about but that's part of it also when you remove those light lingering insect pests from from the system like boll weevil and you manage budworms with technology you don't have this chronic reduction in fruit retention so you don't have insects biting at you all year you got other things out there that cause problems but you don't have those two pests 
that are chronically removing fruit, even at sub-threshold levels where control wouldn't be necessary. So that's part of the gain. And then the rest of the gain is associated with things like season length that we were talking about earlier. So not only are, are you making more lint in turnout, you're making more bowls because fruit retention has been increased through the season. You are also making more bowls because you've got a few more nodes in the field and you've got more time to do that. You couldn't have safely done that in the presence of some of these insect threats that we've had historically. Mm. So it really is the, is really a pretty interesting tale to tell. Yeah, so uh, it is super, super interesting. Um, and so let's put on our farmer hat for a minute. That's that's a pretty, it seems, or it would appear to me, um, you know, 15 years or wherever this has come on is probably a drop in the bucket. I shouldn't say that, but it's it's a quarter of the time a farmer spends his career farming. Let's give him 50 to 60 years or whatnot. Um, how does that, and you said earlier, it's a, it's a great victory for science in this matter. How do you take that science and translate it to a farmer's field? And how do you, how do you help them manage that knowing that science has changed so drastically? It, it appears to be a change drastically, at least how, how I view it. Well, say, like, how do you take that in, and articulate that to a farmer who's, who's maybe used to doing it a one way for a certain amount of time? How, does that question make sense? And, and how do you? That makes You just summed up what I've spent the last six months trying to figure out how to do it. (laughs) Well, give give Um, it our best shot here then. (laughs) And I'm not, I don't mean to present this as we know all the answers, but I have a great concern in today's world going forward. As cotton is, is coming back this year, there are lots of folks around that are talking about growing cotton that have not grown cotton in, some of them in 15 years. Some of them maybe more than that. And, and I think that will ultimately be a positive for us because as we begin to diversify and learn to grow these other crops, we're going to be, have a more stable, more sustainable farming system. But my concern in it today is understanding that these varieties have changed. Their fundamental nature has changed. We need to understand that that change has occurred to be able to manage those varieties in the most appropriate way. And I think that will probably have to wind up being the subject for a whole nother conversation. But what I want to leave people really with in this part of this conversation is if you've not dealt with cotton varieties lately, look into the background and the basis of how the things that you're choosing to grow now, as you come back into cotton production are going to behave because they are much different products than they were 15 or 20 years ago. They're much more aggressive growing. They're longer season. Even the earlier things that we're growing today are probably, and I would love to figure out how to put numbers around all of this, but even the earlier things we're growing today are later than the earlier things were 20 years ago. And there are some management decisions that you have to make that can help manage all of that and and ultimately be able to capitalize on the fact that insect management's easier uh, in all honesty, cotton production, just generally speaking, is a whole lot easier than it was w- when I began my career. But you can capitalize on the fact that insect management's easier. We're not planting so early and we get better stands. You've got yield potentials that are really unheard of. I, I never dreamed we'd be at these yield levels or yield potentials when I started out working. And the big piece of this that comes along with it is is a, another one of those scientific victories, I think, 
And that is that this is all coming with fiber quality parameters around the lint that are notably better. They are, they are significantly better than we've had in past eras of production. So we're growing fiber in a way that, that really shows how science can, can overcome some of this stuff. And if you could, uh, again, back for myself as a novice in this area, just what do you mean by fiber quality? Is that, that's the turnout after you, they gin it, or can you just give the quick well, background? Turnout, on no, turnout is, is one of those variety parameters that is primarily associated with a, a given variety. They just vary some. When I'm talking about fiber parameters, and we'll probably do a, a show about sure. this almost exclusively sooner or later, but fiber for every cotton bale is scored by a lab, uh, a, a neutral party lab that gives it a ranking of fiber quality. And there are certain parameters in fiber quality that it has to meet certain standards to be marketable without being a, a discount. Okay. So if it meets certain standards, the things that are scored are, some of them are length. So that's how long the fiber is, strength, how strong the fiber is. There's one called Micronair, which is a measure of fineness for fiber. And that can be too high or too low, and we'll get into that sooner or later. Uh, there's uniformity, there's color, there's uh, trash that's in the lint. The, the, all those things have to be uh, within a certain range to get the, the optimal price for the lint. Gotcha. And we have some influence over that through the breeding process. And we're main, we appear to be able to maintain these gains in yield and increase fiber quality to levels that's really been unheard of to this point. Wow. Yeah, there's, uh, I mean, there's probably 15 episodes we just discussed here, Jay, that you can really dive into and bring a farmer, bring a breeder on, bring, uh, bring any of your colleagues on. We'll have, to, we'll have to explore those opportunities going forward here for sure. That's amazing well, stuff. You got to watch me. I'll get down in the details. I, I, I love the details. I mean, that's that's the beauty of having a um, an audio podcast like this is to uh, is to really, um, you know, it's up to us to how long we want to talk about stuff and go in the weeds on. And uh, I, I would venture to say many others will find this. Uh, hopefully, many others will find this as interesting as I do because it's uh, it's a fascinating story that you're telling about the history of cotton production production. And um, again, that's that's your view is probably shared by many, but I'd love to, I'd love one day for us to get a farmer or one of our, one of the breeders on to kind of uh, amplify your story and just really share that personal experience. Cause it's uh, the, the story you just told is to me, it's super fascinating just how much has changed in the last 20 years alone and, and how modern agriculture has really you know, come forward in this sense. And, and just one crop, right? I mean, this happens across lots of crops, but um, particularly in cotton, it seems you've had a, your fair share of challenges that, um, you know, science and farmers have really come together to address. Yeah. And, and I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think where I would, where I would leave this for this episode probably is that as we move forward and we get further over into the year and it's more appropriate time to talk about it. When I say you need the information to know how each variety behaves, that's where we spend a lot of our time at Scott Learning Center is characterizing how varieties respond to some of this stuff so that we can give guidance about how you need to, to manage a variety when you plant it. And I think that will probably be the subject for the next next case. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, anything else to, to leave us with, Jay? As a fascinating history um, for myself, and, and I thought 
um, I got a lot of notes written down here that we might uh, going to explore probably in future episodes here, but uh, anything to wrap out about the uh, cotton and, and it's quick little history you gave us there. No, I, I think it's got a bright future ahead. And, and if there's anything that the Scott learning center can do to anyone that, that listens to this in the planning season, give us a call. We'd be happy to try. All to right. Help. Well, that's Jay. Uh, he's down in Mississippi. This is Nick up in, uh, up in Missouri. And uh, this has been another episode of uh, Southern agriculture weekly. Uh, where we talked a lot about cotton farming and uh, history of cotton uh, development, varieties, background, et cetera. Jay's a fantastic storyteller and uh, knows his stuff. And uh, I'm happy to keep doing this. And hopefully uh, you enjoy it as much as we do. Uh, just two guys sitting here talking about Southern agriculture. So uh, we'll do it again next week. We'll have this published shortly. And uh, thanks again for your time, Jay. All right. Thank uh-huh. you all. Have a good